Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about playtesting. We're talking about how to run playtests, what to look for, all the different ins and outs and what have yous with playtesting. And we're talking to the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Rob Davio. Rob, really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. I am uh, I, I'm, I'm a man and a myth and a legend, which is <laughs> nice. It's nice to achieve that status finally. Absolutely. Well, you got the number one game on Board Game Geek, so that, that puts you up yeah, there somewhere. Well, I, I, I got a half share. And I got a <laughs> For now, we'll see. There's a lot of stuff. We'll see if Scythe gets up there sooner rather than later. Right. So, Well, hey, congratulations on that. That's awesome. You, you got the Kickstarter for Stop Thief going on right now that's doing really well, so congrats yep. on that. Thank you. Uh, you got a lot of really cool stuff going on. Seafall, which which I think is just an incredible, uh, just amazing feat in gaming. Uh, congrats <laughs> on that. I'm, I'm interested to talk to you about that as far as playtesting yeah. Goes sure. to because I know there was so much years and years that went into that and all the uh, things you had to overcome the challenges in the playtesting on that uh, and I'm just excited to not talk to you about legacy games I feel like you've talked legacy all over the place so if, if you're listening to this and you want to hear Rob's viewpoints on legacy games just Google it and you'll find 511 resources where he's done talks <laughs> and speeches and conferences and podcast all sorts of stuff on that so today I'm really excited uh, to talk about playtesting but let's pretend for a moment. Yep. That no one, that the, the people listening haven't heard of you. Give me, give, give me okay. like the two to three minute bio of kind of who Rob Davio is, how you got into gaming, game design, that kind of thing. Yeah, sure. Uh, I am, let's see, almost 47 years old. I was born in 1970, so I grew up, and when I was about 10 years old, bam, Dungeons and Dragons hit. And everything kind of follows from that Dungeons and Dragons and comic books and Atari 2600 and Commodore 64 games. And I was just like a super geek and nerd. Uh, way back before it was fashionable. And uh, I'd like to thank the world for catching up. And um, and I've always sort of just been like into games, but mostly role-playing games and mostly story. And I thought I was going to be a television writer for a while, and then I ended up in advertising, doing writing. Kind of fell backwards in 1998 into a board game design job at Hasbro. I mean, I was qualified through all of my background, but I wasn't planning on being in board games. Worked there for about 14 years. And um, did a lot of games, a lot of kids games, a lot of work on classic games, was the editor of Trivial Pursuit for a while. So things that are a little different from what I'm doing now. And then my, they moved my job. So I had to leave and um, went out on my own about four years ago. Um, but as I've gotten more and more into my career, my games have started to reflect more and more uh, my role playing roots. So tell me a story and go on an adventure. I don't think I could design a elegant lightly themed euro game if you had a gun to my head yeah so i've tried it just doesn't work so that's that's the real short version so it's hard to say how many games i put on market because sometimes i'm just polishing up a game that's out of print or taking an inventor's idea and doing development work on it or working on a team at hasbro you know i worked on a lot of games that didn't get into print but it's somewhere between 70 or 80 games maybe wow. although people just know me for about three <laughs> Right. Three if you're a, if you like know me casually and about eight if you know me well. Yeah. And so working at Hasbro, what was the design process? What was the playtesting process like in that kind of corporate setting? It was great at the early stages because you, we were working with a team of about 
15 designers in a relatively small space, like a little cube farm in a basement. And some of the designers were not heavy gamers. I mean, they probably didn't play any games outside of work. They would do a lot of preschool games, which are sort of toys and had like robot, you know, roosters that would lay eggs and these sorts of things. They weren't really interested in deeper gameplay. They're kind of toy designers. But there were always six or eight top-notch designers right there, and then another dozen people who loved games right around. So whenever I had an idea, the time that I had from, oh, I have an idea, let me throw something down, let me play it, let me see what's working, and then we revise it was like a couple-hour process. And what I've discovered being out on my own is that a couple hours has moved to a couple weeks living in a relatively you know small suburban community in Massachusetts, just getting people to play it. Um, is hard where where Hasbro was different though was once you get outside that same group of people you didn't have a lot of refinement testing in later stages they did have um, and probably continue to have sort of external testing where they would bring in the like the traditional family that they thought would be the end user and you watch behind the one-way mirror yeah. and um, watch them play and there's a facilitator and it's all very corporate and all very um, kind of sterile yeah, sterile and antiseptic. It completely does not duplicate the gameplay experience. But I learned to avoid those like the plague as I went on in my career because the person moderating may have the best intentions, may be a very good moderator. But as soon as it got into deeper gameplay, they weren't an expert. They wouldn't ask the right questions. They wouldn't see the right things. Their report was always reflective of more like a, a toy Mm-hmm. Or very top level design, and then that report would get forwarded to all these corporate people, including people who had never played the game, and they would read like the top two sentences and make that's it. They would make a judgment on the game after that point. And it was frustrating a couple of times because somewhere along the chain, it was like a chain of telephone. Like the family wasn't the right family, the moderator didn't capture it well, the person reading it didn't understand it, and then the game would be dead. Yeah. So it could be a great game that just happened to run into one hiccup along that chain. Uh, yeah, it really could. And all everyone's intentions were good. And sometimes you would get some really good insights from it, right? You're like, cause the, the thing is a lot of Hasbro games are, you know, they start at three or four, you, you can't read. And then at five, you can kind of read some words and maybe make a decision. And then at six, you can be expected to read a handful of words and eight, you can really read and manage your turn on your own. But if you think of something like Monopoly is age graded eight and Clue is age graded nine because in Monopoly, a parent can help a kid because everything's public. But in Clue, they've got a private hand of cards. So if the parent's playing with a kid, the parent can't facilitate the gameplay without ruining it. So sometimes when you're designing for a game that's for seven versus eight or versus nine, it's incredible the differences in understanding on the kids. So some of these... um, some of these sessions were tremendously valuable because you would see like a seven-year-old come in and you go, oh, yeah, I forgot what it's like to be seven, yeah. right? Like this is way too complicated. So it was great to see actual kids playing as opposed to a bunch of 30-year-olds right. in an office. Um, but yeah, but sometimes the messaging would get all corporate and confusing and out of control. And so it was, it was hit or miss. Yeah. So how many, how many playtests would, would they do at Hasbro for a game? It's kind of whatever I wanted. Okay. I mean, whatever the designer wanted. There wasn't like a, a, a formal, you know, it's like the, Hasbro has many good points, many bad points. Um, they would always want simpler, simpler, simpler to be mass market. But by and large, other than the game design department and, and occasionally, but not always, the marketing person with the game, they'd be like, well, we trust you to do your job. Yeah. And so 
if I was really busy, like I didn't really need to play test trivial pursuit, <laughs> right. like the gameplay was done. And so I would just make a gut on the questions. And sometimes I would read a handful of questions to people to see if they were awkward. Yeah. But when you're dealing with 4,800 questions, at some point you just sort of judge whether something's good or bad. And then you get something that's a little more complex or it's got uh, like a lot of electronics and you really do need to do more testing. So it, it could be literally from none to dozens and dozens of groups. Gotcha. internally or externally with trivial pursuit did you ever sneak in anything that were just funny to you or slightly inappropriate or anything like that just sneak no in? i didn't <laughs> i didn't write them myself i was like i always call myself an editor on them rather than the game designer because i wasn't allowed to change the gameplay or the board or anything like that and there was a pool of writers that were pretty much you would go to when they know how to do it so i would go to them and then kind of outline the parameters of here are the categories, here's the tone we're looking for, and then they would do it. I did slightly more complicated things with um, when we included a DVD with it, which we did like 12 years ago, middle of last decade. And uh, yeah, no, so I never snuck anything directly in there. Those those were a little bit like, I was fun to work on, but they were a little bit, I don't want to say turn and burn. It was just more like the type of thing, like I wasn't going to do anything revolutionary with them. So it was like getting getting the job done professionally rather than trying to get the job done in a revolutionary way. Yeah, I understand. So what what are like the biggest things you took away from your time at Hasbro? Like how like what did you learn there that you've been really able to carry forward and into what you do now? Well, what it was was a sort of a very traditional like apprentice journeyman master progress like in the traditional way of like learning a craft because I consider game design a craft. Like I started out and I was a novice and yet I was able to from you know, full-time job you know, how many ever hours it was in a week to talk games and make games and make bad games and have them get better and make okay games and learn and learn about costing and learn about plastic and tooling and the importance of marketing and the importance of being able to encapsulate an idea and sell it in and learning about distribution channels. So instead of having to see it from the outside while having a full-time job and then maybe design one or two games a year, I was in a position to be able to do you know, from three to 10 games in a year, not of all of which saw the light of day and be around other games and just learn on the job, learn on the job, learn on the job. And, you know, when I started, I was very much, hey, if it's a good game, it'll find its audience. Get out of my way, marketing weenie. (laughs) And, you know, by the end, I realized, no, like if no one knows your game exists or you're not talking to the right person and your game doesn't match what they expect, it doesn't matter how good it is, Right. right? There's too many games out there. You need to have a point of view. So, um so I learned a lot about the the process. I also learned about myself as a designer, what I like to design and what I don't like design and where my strengths are and where my weaknesses are. And then I left and thought I knew more than I did because then I had to <laughs> learn everything all over again on my own when I didn't have friends around me and I didn't have bosses to tell me no, right? When I said yes and no to myself, I would I made all the mistakes that people make when they're sort of off the leash. Right. And it's been four years and I'm starting to figure out like, again, like how to do this on my own. Yeah. It could be tough to be your own gatekeeper when it's, yeah, up to it you. really is. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that, that people don't understand as far, cause everybody's like, Oh, I just want to go to Kickstarter. It's like, well, okay. That, that could be the route you need to take, but also going through a publisher has a lot of benefits because you do have people to go, no, that's a bad idea. You know, cause don't, don't just believe that everything you think is, is great. Oh, I mean, that's, yeah. The, what's the one thing I tell people is, um, whatever, I mean, it's good. You need a strong, sense of like design you need like an idea of where the game's going to go you need to have ego enough to handle all the negative feedback right but you also need to listen to everyone if enough people tell you don't do this or i don't like this 
then that's what your audience is going to say. Even if you think like, well, I don't care. I like it. You're going to alienate your audience. You have to decide whether you're making games to satisfy like most of the people who are going to play it or yourself. Right. And, you know, there's there's a difference. I did that in Seafall, like we're you know talking about playtesting is the game is played in rounds. So there's a first player and then, you know, you play rounds of play. And I used to have it when someone reached the target glory level, the game just was over right, mm -hmm. right away. And everyone kept saying, I want it to be, I want to go to the end of the round. I want to have the same number of turns. And I kept saying like, we'll play better then, right? Like, you know, like, <laughs> right? Like, like why, like we knew that person won, why are we doing, but it really bothered people. So in yeah. the design process, I just moved it over. I had to write some extra rules for it. I had to be like, what happens if after, player A has reached the glory and then they bring them back below the glory or two people share. Like it increased the rules and it increased like a little bit of complexity, but everyone was happier. Right. And it wasn't the game, wasn't how I wanted the game to be, but it's how everyone who played it wanted it to be. So I was like, okay, well, you know, that's the way we're going to go. So let's come, let's compare, let's compare risk legacy with Seafall or with uh, Pandemic Legacy, as far as the playtesting goes, I don't know how in the world you got Hasbro to, to publish Risk Legacy. Like that is a a feat in and of oh, itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, just no, crazy. Uh, but let's talk about the difference in that process compared to the process now that you're on your own. Yeah, we won't get into it here, but I, I think getting Risk Legacy through the Hasbro system was a m bigger accomplishment than the designing it. Yeah. <laughs> That's definitely the, so. that's definitely my opinion on it. But as far as like playtesting, what was different in Risk Legacy playtesting yeah. through that corporate Hasbro kind of filter versus you know you having to kind of do it all on your own with Seafall or Pandemic Legacy? Yeah, so they really each one of them had three different playtest styles. So with Risk Legacy, I knew Risk. I had done Risk Star Wars and Risk Lord of the Rings and Risk Twenty Two Ten AD and like a whole bunch of and, and two player Risk. So I knew Risk. I knew the engine. I knew where it could expand and how to change it. So I had to figure out like the legacy stuff. Yeah. And this isn't going to be like a legacy talk, as you said. But um, so I also had a lot of people who knew risk and knew all the variants. So I just started play testing uh, right with the local group. Like Craig Van Ness is a designer who taught me a lot about game design. Phenomenally good at game design. He just went out on his own this this summer and started his own company. So he found a lot of problems right at the beginning. So there were just, I got really good, smart people. Another guy, Dan Sanfilippo, he's still at Hasbro, was playing it early on and found stuff. So I got people who knew risk and knew game design to help me figure out like, well, how does this object permanence work? Yeah. How does one game lead to another work? And there were some big issues there. So it was more like I was the designer with these really smart people. And then I would just have to synthesize all their advice. Uh, one of the things that I do in game design in general is at the beginning, I play the game by myself just to make sure there's nothing horribly wrong. Like you'll think in your head, this game's going to be great, but then sit it down and try to take the first turn. And I just did this like two weeks ago. I was all excited about a game and I sat down to take the first turn and I went, I have no <laughs> good decisions to make on the first turn. Right. Right. Like I understand like macro what's supposed to happen, but it's like, okay, I've just explained the rules. Here's my hand of cards and here's it go. And I'm like, there's nothing I'm interested in doing. There's no pressure to stop something. There's no incentive to do something. Yeah. So I always just play solo play. Sometimes I walk around a table. Luckily my wife works with me now and she's a gamer. Yeah. That's an awesome, so at least I, awesome yeah, thing to so, have. <laughs> So I can start with two people playing yeah. <laughs> it, right? Which is a big difference because as soon as you bring someone else in, you realize when you're explaining it to them, you can see where they're confused. Right. 
Um, you need real veterans at this point because you have to hand wave and be like, oh, the middle doesn't work. I don't know how it ends, right? I just want to practice. You have to like really define what you're testing because it's almost like you're you're testing different sub pieces of a meal, right? right? Like, does this sauce take okay? Taste okay? And what do you think of these vegetables? And and then you haven't put it all together yet, so you need people who know what they're doing at that point. Um, and then and then I slowly back up where I'm playing with a group. And then I'm watching a group play, but really still facilitating, answering a lot of questions and sort of adjusting rules holes. Then I back up a little bit more where I just watch them play and don't correct them. And then eventually it goes to outside play testing. Yeah. And that's sort of the path I took with would take with all my games. And it wasn't like I got a rule book for it. It's just a system that evolved over time with me. And so with Risk Legacy, I played internally until I felt I had something that kind of worked. And then I found someone who used to work for Hasbro. Name is Chris. Dupuis, he had, he had worked for Hasbro, he had left, but was a gamer, he had done a lot of HeroScape stuff. So I reached out to him to play it, and I said, I'm just going to send you something, can you play test? I'm not even going to tell you what it is, because it was a legacy game, and no one, I'm like, I want you to be able to see if you can figure it out from the rule book. He's like, I should be able to figure it out. I'm like, it's a little different. <laughs> and um, so then he got it, and he sent me an email, he's like, wow, right? So then he played it with his group start to finish and gave a ton of good notes. So I hired him as a developer mm -hmm. to help me figure out like the game idea was mine. Some of the early design was informed by Hasbro people, but the fact that the game holds together as much as it does is due to Chris. Yeah. So then after he came on to help me as a developer, I probably sent the kits to um, three or four groups in addition to playing it inside at Hasbro. And that always seems like a very small number, but in, where legacy games are different, if I get a group, I'm asking them to play 15 games. Right. So um, I wanted it to be somewhat contained, but the feedback system from them was like, hey, tell me what you like and don't like, just give me questions. So if no one had questions, I didn't hear anything. And I didn't have like a front row. I didn't know what happened. It just went away into like a blind, blind box and came back. So a lot of it was uh, subjective evaluations based on the data we got, which was probably not enough data, but still enough to get the game out and, and by and large do a good job. Switching over to Seafall, I, I teamed up with Plaid Hat and as we got to like the three quarters point with it, and that game just took forever because I made it too big. And then it, it was like a brand new game and it was a big game. And I, I would put it aside for weeks or months because I had to like pay my bills doing other work. <laughs> right. Um, so that has its own host of issues, but just focusing in on playtesting, Plaid Hat put it into their system, which they use for Ashes and they use for their regular games, which is highly organized. Um, they give people credit to their store in return for their hours. And it's got a really comprehensive series of questions that you answer, which then can be turned into data, which then can be like analyzed. And while I thought it did a good job and it gave me a ton of data to use in the game. When the game came out, there were complaints about the game that didn't show up in playtesting. Really? So I did the sort of this, well, I did sort of the same thing where I'm like, I took all this data and then I used it to build the final build. And there were some issues with that game, like having taken so long and we really wanted to hit a deadline that it, it probably needed one more round of playtesting or editing like put it all together into its final like graphics and then send it out to groups to make sure we hadn't missed details, which we did right. just because of its scope. But in general, like when people got it, they're saying, oh, this is um, the game is slow, hmm. right? It takes a while to get going, Yeah, which I don't remember hearing in any of the playtest things. And I'm wondering if it's the type of thing 
through no fault of anyone's own, is that, you know, Platt had said, you need to play 12 games to do this. And so the people just sat down and blew through the games as fast as possible and didn't stop and think like, would I play this again if I didn't sign up to play 12? Yeah. You know, were these first two games slow? Because it's not a question we were asking for. Yep. So therefore, we didn't get the data. We didn't say, did the game like feel right? And maybe we had a question about like length of game, but there's a difference between the length of a game be- being one number and whether that felt like it should be the right number. Right. Um, so in retrospect, despite a very good system, which has produced very good games in the case of a legacy game, didn't, I think, give the data that would have been the most helpful. It's a system I would use if I do a game with them for a non-legacy game, hands down. Mm-hmm. Like I remember being super impressed at the time and being like, this is, this is amazing compared to risk. Yeah. But something along the way, something's got through that didn't get that should have got picked up, but didn't. I don't know if it's a fault of their system or me not asking the right questions or legacy games in general or Seafall specifically. I'm still every time I do a project, I think about like when I'm done, how I could have done it right. Yeah. Um, this one's no different. What? So that's so that's Seafall. What Pandemic Legacy did both season one and season two, which Matt and I have been done with for about nine months and is coming out third quarter, if I may shamelessly plug. Absolutely. Uh, uh, is a system that Matt had picked up because he was in uh, experience design and user design in this in Silicon Valley, right? Like he's worked for Apple and Yahoo and like a bunch of those sort of things to, to learn user experience, right. which sort of takes basically what we would you and I both dismissed as like corporate and sterile from Hasbro behind the glass wall, but mm-hmm. makes it more, um, relatable by having it be like a communication between the playtesters and the designer rather than a facilitator. Yeah. So what he has people do on all his games and we did for our legacy games, which I'm now picking up for many of my games, it should be all of them, but um, it's very time consuming, but gets good results is everyone's got a phone or an iPad or a GoPro or some way to record video. And there is a number of places where you can share or host video, whether it's sharing the actual files on Google Drive or doing a private link on YouTube. And we have people play every game, well, play a game, and every game that they play, they record everything, like from when they set up to when they put it away. Right. And then they send it to us. And being a legacy game, we don't, we say like, do it as you get it. Like if you play January, give us January. And so we will consume this video and take a lot of notes. Yeah. In a spreadsheet, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of cells filled from everything from stray observations to um, deep insights. And they're all tagged differently, whether this is an issue and, and then an idea or a concern or a play error. And what I have found is games in general are an experience, right? We think of them as the pieces and the bits and the rules. But the game really starts as soon as someone says, I want to play a game and then you have to figure out what game and then there's anticipation and expectations and you open the box and you set it up and you play the game and then you see people's reactions after and then you put it away. And all these things are important for the experience to be good. And it's so easy in playtesting for a designer to think of the game starts when a person takes their first turn and it's over when the last turn is taken. And while that's the heart of the game, it's really missing everything else around it. And so by watching this video, we could watch when people are on their phones we could watch when they would open something and just be kind of felt like it was disappointing or flat when they get, if one person was reading something out loud, what were the other people doing? Were they listening or did we give them like three things that look at at once? So 
three different people looking at three different things and no one saw the same thing, right? Because everyone's excited for their piece of the puzzle. Yep. Little stray comments in there. The example, and we just did a talk at the GDC on this, so it's fresh in my mind, is one of the people was who was playing is a is like a therapist or a playtester or a, you know psychiatrist or something and i had just written sloppy text that said a certain uh, group of people in pandemic legacy and i'll avoid spoilers were exhibiting abnormal uh, thoughts and blah blah and they were being like rage filled and all these things and he just made the comment he's like how do you exhibit abnormal thoughts which is exactly <laughs> right right like you can't exhibit thoughts right and so i went back in and so that became a no like exhibiting normal thoughts. How do you exhibit normal thoughts? And so when we were going through this checklist, I'm like, oh, that's right. Exhibiting nor abnormal behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, and I put like, with you know, their thoughts seem muddled. So I got like the, it was just much cleaner. The entire story of Pandemic Legacy, I think takes place on 23 cards. Hmm. Um, that's it. So those cards have to really work hard. And by seeing how people react to them, like this is too long, they didn't understand this, they missed this clue, we went through. So yeah, I found it invaluable to uh, pick up Matt's. I talk about it more than him because I do more podcasts. So people, I think, ascribe it to me. But picked up Matt's system of just watching on video, which you can do live. You go to a game convention, you're a game designer, you go to some, doesn't have to be a big convention, go to some small convention, and you get people to play a game. And the game's, in your mind, playable and, and getting in the, like, the back third to mostly done. Your job should be to sit down with a laptop or a notepad and not say a word for the entire time. Yep. Let them go, let them learn the rules, let them go to the rules, let them make mistakes, let them play horribly and write down every single thing they do because you're not gonna be there at the table. Yep. I have to use video because I am a shameless uh, like dinner party host and DM who always wants everyone to be having a good time. Yeah. And I cannot shut up and let them drive into a ditch. And, you know, when Matt and I happen to be in the same place doing this, he's constantly putting his hand on my arm, <laughs> right? Because even with body language, I'll, like, yeah. react. And he and he is a master at this because it's what he did for, like, 15 years is just I'm not here. And he was told, actually, by someone that he needed to do this when he was at – I think it was at Yahoo when he was developing Pandemic. And he kept trying to fix it. Hmm. And the people he was playing with were researchers, and they finally told him to sit 15 feet away in the corner <laughs> with a book and not say a word for the rest of the lunch. Yep. And he said he filled a book with all the things that were wrong that other groups must be seeing. And he finally could see what needed to be fixed because they weren't playing how he wanted it to play them to play. They're playing it how they thought they should play it. And there's a big difference. Yeah, definitely. And I so. think what you just said is so important for all designers to realize you're not going to be there when the game is eventually published, you know, produced is on people's tables. You're not going to be there to take up for it. You're not going to be there to say, well, this is what I was trying to do or defend it in any way. It's just going to have to stand on its own two feet. And so go ahead and start doing that in the, in the playtesting time period. That way it can already start learning to crawl and then learn to walk. And then eventually the game can hopefully learn to run as you figure out all the things that are wrong with it. And I love this idea of videoing. I mean, Jamie Stegmaier talked a lot about it. He's using it for Charterstone that's coming out. Mm -hmm. He was super excited about all the stuff he's learning from from video and playtests. I come from a football background. Played, I don't know, a decade of my life went to football. And I spent so many hours in Watching the film, film room getting yeah. chewed out by coaches, looking at little details. 
a hundred times. And they had that little remote control that was so good about rewind and fast forward and all that. And you would just go over the same thing over and over and over again. I don't know that you do that, but it at least gives you the opportunity to kind of go back and look at things because in a playtesting session, you normally can only look at one thing at a time, but when you film it, you can go back and you can look at different things and look at a different thing. And so that's just a really awesome way to do it. Yeah. I mean, unlike football, which obviously is, um, I mean, if you, I'm going to get into football's <laughs> tangent, which I like. I'm good with um, that. <laughs> you know, in a 60-minute game, how many actually seconds from snap to down are there? How many minutes of actual active play? It's about nine minutes total. It's about Right, it's about yeah. nine minutes. So every one of those, you got 11, 22 people running around. So you can watch those same different nine minutes over and over again. Mm-hmm. Game design, you don't do that as much. What happens is when Matt and I do a, a pandemic legacy, we will usually send out a kit, which we have to make ourselves, so there's no spoilers. Right to two to four groups depending on where it is and the process and i think people think with legacy games you got to test it with 50 groups and it's like no it's really about qualitative research versus quantitative data and then we'll split them up so we might watch group a and i would watch group b so we actually only see about half of the play test okay because unlike nine minutes of film in a football game to see pandemic legacy if you were playing all 12 months is probably uh 15 or 18 hours of film right from just one group. Uh, just one group. So that's why we haven't sent it in bite-sized pieces. That's why I've realized that you can get really good at figuring out what's going on at 1.8 speed. After that, yeah. you can't. But And then below, it's like you feel like you can go fast. 1.7, 1.8, because people are slow when they're playing. The game. They're talking. They're making decisions. They're getting more coffee. So it's you have to watch it faster. So I'll take notes on one group. He'll take notes on another. But occasionally, we will, and then we'll read each other's notes and put them together and discuss them. We'll leave notes like he'll be like, Rob, you really need to watch this section when they open it up. The writing is particular. I do most of the writing. He'll be like, either the writing was spot on, you'll be happier. The writing was awful. Like we need to fix it. So I will go in like like you know talking about with football and just look for a few key moments in there to to make it um, work. But I got to tell you, by the end of the experience, because we'll we'll do January, you know, February, March, maybe, and play that. And then we'll fix it and then get it out to May and then fix it and get it out to July. By the time we get to the last group, I am so tired of seeing that January <laughs> game. Like another group's January game, I'm like, yep, yep. You know, it's my 15th time of watching a group experience it for the first time. So you have to be really focused at the end that you're not tuning out or jaded because for them it's the first time. Right. And it's close to what the final game's going to be. So you really have to see if all your work has, has done something. Right. I was talking to a designer earlier on in the in the podcast, and he talked about if you don't design a game you enjoy, at least to a certain degree, you're really going to hate your life at some point because you're going to have oh. to teach it so often and sit through so many playtests that you're going to eventually just kind of hate the game. Um, yeah, I always say when I, when I um, really grow to hate a game I'm working on, it means it's almost done. Okay. That's a right? good, like, cause that's, good that's about it. It. like when I'm really like, I don't want to look at this. I don't want to fix it. At least I can comfort myself and say, well, that probably means I'm 80% done. Yeah. Now, some of them, you know, buck the trend and, and continue to be problems. And some of them are kind of a pleasure the whole way through, but all of them are work. But yeah, I mean, something that I, I've really sort of realized recently and have been talking about is, you know, you got to love that initial idea. Yep. And there's a lot of ideas. Ideas are cheap. Ideas are free. People like tend to protect ideas is executing the idea. That's all the hard work. Exactly. So if you, if a person's a designer and they're sitting down and they're like, I want to come up with 10 games that I want to make, you could probably do it in an hour or yep. a day. Yep. Pick the one as your absolute favorite because you're setting out to do a marathon or a triathlon with that idea yep. and you have to continue to be in love with it. If you're just starting out going, yeah, this could work, right. 
this is fine. You're going to just make your life a living hell. Yeah, and I've done that in the past. I've had a cool or an interesting idea, but not there's something I like really loved or really was excited about. It was just like, oh, this hasn't been done. This is an interesting idea. And yeah, like not not even that far into it. I just think, man, I just I just don't enjoy this. Like maybe it is a good idea. Maybe it would be a good game, but I'm not having fun, and so I'll drop it and go do something else. Yeah, that's a tricky bit, actually, as you're de- developing, designing, playtesting game. Is all games at some point are going to feel, this isn't working. Maybe this wasn't a good idea. I don't like it. Yep. Every one of them. Right. So if you walked away when it got hard or uninteresting, then you would never finish a game. And that's cool because maybe you just want to kind of do game design as this casual little mental exercise. You're not trying to get it published. You just like starting stuff and yep. fills your time. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. If you're in a position like me where I got to finish to pay my bills, <laughs> yeah. I can't walk away from them. But some games aren't a good idea right. where you can see like they're not going to end up being great mm-hmm. and you should walk away from those because now you're just wasting energy. And that's a real tricky step that probably is better decided by the reaction of playtesters than by yourself because you're always going to feel like I'm tired of it. It's hard. But if you see people, if you ever have a playtester asking like, hey, do you have another version of that game, which is a game you're working on? That's a keeper yeah. when people want to play an unfinished game again conversely when you're asking a group hey can you try this again and you get a lot of oh <laughs> yeah. right it just might mean you, you played it with the wrong group or it was too early but if you get that from enough groups or enough times then maybe this game is just not going to ever get as good as you want it to be yeah and i think it's so important for us to realize as designers you're creating a game but what you're really creating is a fun engine where people put time yeah. in and they get fun out and so if they're putting all this time in and not really getting enough fun out, then either something needs to change drastically or, or, you know, switch things up, maybe even walk away if, if ultimately the game can't be fixed. Uh, yeah. And that's tough. Yeah. That is, that is a tough decision. And, and I talk to people all the time that there's a real continuum of, of game design. You know, people listen to this probably want to be game designers and I'm going to, I'm going to ask them what kind of game designer do you want to be? Yeah. Do you want to be a game designer who makes a game and plays it with their group right. and, and, you all get a kick out of it because that's a absolutely wonderful hobby. Yep. That's like a little side thing. And I think there's this pressure to make games and get it published and then make a name and then have it as a full-time job where I am. Right. And I got to say, if that's what you want to do, it's a pretty cool way to make a living. But everything that goes along with having a job then comes with you to game design. Exactly. Uh, you're uh, writing checks and you're going to conventions and you're paying taxes and you're doing PR and you're talking to publishers and all the things that you would think you wouldn't do if you just get up every morning and think about games, they're still there. Yeah. Right. So, and, um, so you still have a job. It's just your job involves your hobby. And so there's a lot of continuum in between. So I just like ask people, and I know this isn't about play testing, but I think it's important, which is what would make you happy about being a game designer? Would it be playing with your friends, playing with your family, having a game published once every couple of years so you could go and see it on the shelf and right. like having multiple games, making it a part-time job, um, helping other people with games, being a developer and learning from other people and, and getting a little bit of money to like learn the crap. Like what do you want out of it? Because I think there's this just weird assumption that I want to be, I want to design a game leads to, I want to be Eric Lang. Right. Right. Like, and, and, you know, there's a reason I use his name. Like we know him, Jamie Stegmeyer. I guess I'm on that list. I don't, it doesn't feel like I've quite earned it yet, but uh, where you can do it full time and people would know your name. That's, that's a very small percentage of things. So it's like kind of saying, I guess I want to be a quarterback. Yeah. What position did you play? I played a receiver. 
You play a receiver. Okay, I want to be a receiver. Does that mean at the NFL? Does that mean at college? Do I want to just play in a local league? Do I want to do a pickup game? Yeah. Like, I think everyone starts out with, if you're a receiver, you're like, I want to be in the NFL. It's a natural goal. Yeah, definitely. And, um, but very few people make it there. So, like, find something that might be realistic. You play at college? Is that where you? Yeah, I ended up, I played at Auburn University. Um, oh, wow. So, yeah, I got, to, I got to play it on a, and that's my favorite team. I'm from Alabama. I grew up. Right, literally 30 minutes down the road from Auburn, my first ever college football game I went to was an Auburn game, and I remember this is this this is going to sound like a tangent, but I've got a point to it. I remember okay. that first game I went to, and I was sitting. We had really good seats. My buddy's friend, uh, my friend was a uh, his dad was a doctor, so he had like incredible seats. We're like right behind the bench, and I remember sitting in the bleachers, looking as the as the jumbotron was going crazy, and the crowd 80, 90, you know, thousand people going nuts, and the smoke filled the tunnel. And the team walked out. They didn't run out. They walked out of the tunnel like some bad dudes. And I remember sitting in that moment, and I was in like middle school at the time, and I thought, I just want to do that. Like, I just want to be one of those guys with that helmet, wearing that jersey, and I want to walk out in that smoke. And if I could do that, you know, and it was like all of a sudden this little dream came, you know, and and I took hold of it, and about, man, 14, like six or seven years later, I did yeah. it. I did it. I walked through that smoke. I had the helmet on. I had the jersey on. I walked through. You know, I didn't get to play a whole lot at Auburn, uh, mostly special teams. But I did. I accomplished the original goal, the original dream. And like you're saying, yeah, everybody wants to play in the NFL. You know, I look back and I go, okay, well, if this had happened, if I got in this lucky break, maybe I'd have played there. But the truth of it is, I accomplished everything I wanted to set out to do when I walked through that tunnel for that very first time. And so I yep. think going back into game design, I think it's so valuable for designers to realize what is it, what is really important to you? Is it important to become the next Eric Lang or is it just important to sit down and have really good games that your family enjoys, your kids have fun with, like be careful about getting yourself worth from other people telling you that you're somebody or from other yep. people you know, looking at uh, you and saying, "Oh, this is you're you're this kind of a person. You're this kind of a designer." You you really have to decide for yourself what you want to accomplish, and then go do that. And if it goes better than that, awesome. But ultimately, don't let other people determine your self worth. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, it's just it's a matter of if you decide, like, if I'm not the next Eric Lang, then I failed. Yeah, that I'm not a horrible game designer. It's like no, no, like there are not many people make a living at it, and you know. We talk, Eric and I talk and we see each other at conventions. I'm like, are you ever home? He's like, no, are you ever home? I'm like a little more than you because I got kids <laughs> and you don't. But yeah. Um, yeah, like we're always traveling. People are like, you work from home. Like I kind of sleep at the office. I'm working nights. I'm working weekends. <laughs> I'm like driving an hour to get people play testing. Like yeah. it, it becomes like um, a commitment. Right. Right. I can't be like, yeah, I don't feel like working on this game for a month or two. I'm going to go do some it's summer. I'm going to go play golf or something like that. I don't even play golf. I don't know why I picked that. Um <laughs> Uh, it was like, I can't, it's like, nope, I got to have this ready for Gen Con. And so you start getting structure and you start getting meetings and it's a very different mindset than when I was in my early twenties and I was in advertising, like, I'm going to make up a new magic system for D and D. And it was just like a fun pastime. And I, then I get to a point, I'm like, okay, that was cool. And I just moved on. And it's a different level of satisfaction that I have now. Like when I put a game out and I walk into a store and I still see on the shelf, I'm like, oh, cool. I made that. That's that thing I made. Yeah. But it was a different satisfaction to just sit down and spend a rainy Saturday afternoon working on a magic design and having no care in the world about what happened next other than I'm going to bring this to my D&D group. We're going to play it, see if it works. Yeah. Right. And that was just that was just sort of like pure fun in a way. 
Definitely. And I think it's so important for us to realize that everybody's fighting a hard battle. Eric Lang is fighting a hard battle in some way that nobody else gets to see. And so many designers, they look at that and they go, I want that life, but be careful what you wish for, because maybe that life is nothing like what you really think it is. I mean, I work, I've been Eric's house and we're working together sort of casually on a project trying to, trying to get it going. Um, He's full time at Cool Mini or not. Now, luckily, the project we were working on was going to go to that publisher so (laughs) we can continue. He didn't have to have the hard talk with me about how we had to stop it. (laughs) that He did with some other people. Um, But yeah, no, it's like every Wednesday night, whether he wants to or not, he goes down to the local game store and plays a new game. Doesn't matter if he's been traveling, doesn't matter if he's worked a full day. Um, And every Tuesday and Friday at his house, he hosts a playtest session, whether he wants to, whether he doesn't want to, which is what causes him to get up on Tuesday and Friday, make sure he works really hard to have a new prototype because people are coming and he can't be like, sorry, I don't have anything because they've traveled to get to his house. Um, He travels probably with his old life, 10 to 15 weeks a year. Um, I was at a game convention with him. We were both like, um, like guests of the game. So we shared a suite at a hotel with a common room and I got up, I went to bed at like midnight and I got up at seven to do stuff and he was working and I'm like, you're up early. He's like, no, no, I had an idea, dude. I didn't go to bed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, wow. And that's, that's how he does it. Yep. So yeah, like I said, it's like you bring, you bring your job to your hobby and then it has job stuff around it, yep. um, which doesn't mean it's not satisfying as hell. Right. Right. But it just means it's not. I think people think like now it's being a football player, like roll out on Sunday, <laughs> just play football, work four months a year. I mean, yeah. it's like, you know, it's easy to just see the, the, the end result and not see the 99% that led there. Yeah, definitely. And that's, that's the case. Like you sit up in the stands and this is, this is another game design thing I'm going to take from football. You sit in the stands and somebody misses a tackle on the field and the guy next to you goes, what, how do you, how do you miss that tackle? I would have made that tackle. It's like, would you? Like, (laughs) would you have gone through the 12 months that led into that opportunity to be in that moment, the strength training, the film watching, the running, all these things that went into that opportunity? Yeah, that guy failed. But he put himself in position to have that opportunity with the last decade of work. And would you have done the last decade of work to be in that place right then, right there? No, of course not. You know, but people, they only see the outside result yep. a lot of times and they don't think about what goes into it and it's the same thing with games you know like seafall how many years was seafall in development uh three three and a half i've put thousands of hours into it absolutely people don't see that you know yeah. they're, they're going to play that game one or two times maybe and they're right off the bat they're going to have a judgment oh well why did he do this or i wish he'd done this different or maybe oh this is great but they're not going to see the thousands of hours you put into it and that's just kind of part part of this thing and it's so important as designers to understand that yeah, it's part of the deal, right? It doesn't matter what work you threw away to get there. Yep. The end result is the only thing that matters. And like that tackle, some people will be like, eh, you know, this wasn't as good as Pandemic Legacy. I, mean, I remember with the publisher, it's like, are you giving me another Pandemic Legacy? I mm-hmm. said, you know, mathematically, no. I'm not going to keep <laughs> giving you the number one game on Board Game Geek and then replace it with the next one. Right. Like, let's just be more realistic <laughs> and say, if everything breaks our way, it might be in the top 200 for a while. Yeah. Right. And if it ends up in the top 1000 or the top 500, then it's a quality game. Yeah. And they're like, well, you set a high bar for yourself. I'm like, I can't. I will go insane yeah. if every game I'm working on, I'm saying has to be as good as this game that just everything came together. Right. Right. And a lot of times uh, that happens. Like success destroys as many people as failure does in a lot of ways where you, you just try to live up to that standard that you've quoted, quote unquote, set for yourself. 
when really lightning struck twice in a bunch of different places and a lot of different variables were in place and all that, and you had something really good and all that. Yeah. But you can't just bet on that every time. No, you can't bet on it. And, and I think, and let me say this, Seafall, when it first came out, had some mixed reviews because I think the people who were reviewing it and the game they wanted was season two of Pandemic. Right. So I think that, and so that set kind of a bad tone. As the months have gone on, I get regular emails and comments from people and see comments that the group that I thought would like it is playing it and liking it. Yeah. It just took them a couple months to get to it. And the problem was I started Seafall before I started Pandemic Legacy. Pandemic Legacy took off. And so everyone who wouldn't have bought Seafall went out and did. Right. And so then they were disappointed. Yep. But it was a really good experience for me about success and then the outcome of success and over-promoting and creating too much anticipation and all of these things. And I got to... I don't consider it a failure. It's a mixed bag, but it wasn't a glowing success. I came up with Pandemic Legacy and it was a glowing success. And I got to taste the, eh, this was fine feeling. And it doesn't feel good. Yeah. It's not fun. So you, like everyone else, I get like upset or not upset, but you know, get down on yourself. Yeah. And maybe I don't know what I'm doing and why did I do this? And you read a review and you're like, ah, that was that the game I wanted to make. But ultimately it's a really good learning experience about like what the market's like, how they're going to feel about things, you know, what I can do better, what I can do worse, when I want to stick to this is the game I want to make and like how to manage all of that. Um, I mean, the one thing I learned is there's a lot of eggs in that basket. Yeah. You know, I was really hoping it would do well and there'd be a Seafall 2 and a Seafall 3 and I don't know, Seafall card game, right? Like that I have a little brand that I could build off of. Yeah. And so I put way too many, much time and energy into that. I still think it was worth it. I still really like doing it. I wanted to make a big game at some point. I'm still happy when I see the groups that are, I wanted to play a play it and they're having a good time. I'm like, that's cool. Yeah. But the question is a good one is would I have been better off doing four smaller games in that period? Mm -hmm. And I, I don't really know. Cause I think it would have then just said, no, I want to make a big game and hindsight's always 2020, 20. but yeah. yeah, that was a lot of work in that. So, well, I think like you said, as long as you learn from it, that's the biggest thing because every game from here on out is going to take lessons from, Seafall and the things that you, you did right and the things that you did wrong. Also, from the gaming industry as a whole, I think Seafall is one of the most important games that's come out in the last however many years because now, I mean, there's going to be so many legacy games that pop up. And people say, oh, well, Pandemic Legacy. I don't think there would be a Pandemic Legacy had there not been a Risk Legacy and a Seafall. Like, that, there's been this kind of progression of things. Yeah. And so the industry as a whole is far better off having a game like that, that, yeah, some, some, and I've watched a lot of reviews and people are saying, oh, you know, not what I wanted. That's, I don't think that's what Seafall was really about. I think it was saying, this is possible. Let's go give it a shot. And I think you did a pretty good job. You know, yeah. I'd rather do something a little crazy and a little big and then not quite reach my goal than to yeah. sit down and be like, uh, I'm going to do a deck builder, mm -hmm. right? Like I'm just going to do something safe and right. kind of what everyone else is doing. Cause quite honestly, I would, I would get, I don't want to say bored, but I'd be disappointed in myself that I'm just trying to do that would feel like a business opportunity. Right. Right. Like, oh, I can do this and sell this many games and make this amount of money. And if I just do some quality work, it'll come out and it'll last a year and it'll be fine. And I'm like, that's not how I want to get up and right. live my day. There's many other jobs that pay far better <laughs> yeah. if you're just going to get up and be like, what's the business opportunity yeah. for this product? Definitely. So, yeah, no, Seafall was written for my 12 year old or designed for my 12 year old self. And the one thing that cracks me up, I haven't really dug deep. But um, like I said, I'm a big D&D fan, mostly first edition. So um, Tomb of Horrors, mm -hmm. which is sort of a wonderfully awful or horribly wonderful uh, adventure, but it's just iconic. 
I hid the Tomb of Horrors in Seafall, and I haven't had anyone directly call me out and be like, dude, because yeah. you have to like really kind of dig deep in the late games to sort of even find it. And then if you find it, you have to be old enough to recognize. <laughs> to yeah. Well, the, the, like I didn't say, hey, you found the Tomb of Horrors. Right. Like anyone who played it and kind of knows it and finds it and then reads that entry in the book would be like, this is a Tomb of Horrors. Yeah, It's hidden in Seafall. But I just, I was delighted as sort of a grown-up D&D player of like, like making that and and just knowing that I could give a little gift back to myself. So it's a very personal project for me yeah. in a way. Definitely. So. Well, let's let's get back into talking about playtesting. How many yeah. how many playtests did Seafall go through? Just a ballpark number. I, I think like I would keep keep versions of it, mm-hmm. you know, and then I would change things, change things. And then when I felt like I was making a significant enough change, I would do like a version change. So there would be so the significant version changes were eleven. Okay. Like where I basically did eleven completely different games, where you'd look at the two and say, "Oh, there's significant changes in how these rules work." Like I see. What's the same, but it's different enough that I'd have to learn it again. So there was 11 versions. Each one within that might have like a point one, a point two, a point three. So I probably did 30 different versions that got play tested, mostly through my with my friends or some early play test groups. I put it out about a year after design. I started when I was on like version four, and I really thought I was close. Yeah. And I, I did, you know, and then the feedback came and it was like, it was so big, it was so big. And then I, I fixed some things and it got longer where like each game was three hours and Colby at Plat Hat's like, dude, I can't put this out. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I'm like, no, you're right. And then I, and then I collapsed it back down and then Colby sold his company to Z-Man and then they had different opinions and it was after Pandemic Legacy. So there was a lot of, uh, a lot of versions that went through and then, and along the way there were. Like my core play testers who are my friends, I'd see them like say every six months. I'm like, guys, I'm going to, they played those first like three or four games, like a ton. And then when we got towards the end and we were on version like nine or 10, that's when Plaid had did their big, you know, let's get 40 groups to sort of crunch through this. And then I took that data and had my local game group and we meet on Wednesdays, play through it every week, one game a week for like a couple months. So I could sit there really firsthand and do that thing with Matt and just take a ton of notes. And I made some changes like they would come in and be like, OK, since last week, I would just I was just trying to simplify and collapse and simplify and get it down. So, like I said, after that, we were really at the deadline to make Gen Con and Essen, which we wanted to make. And, you know, hindsight being 2020, I pushed it and said, you know what, let's just push it out another six months. You do the graphics. And that's really like get another like three or four groups on video to play through the whole thing really get a sense of it because just just to fine-tune it one big step but i was kind of sick of it yeah. right what i should have said to colby is you do that <laughs> yeah. and then you get isaac or someone in house to go through and act with like a hatchet as an editor yeah. and say this isn't my game this is not a game to my childhood right get rid of this change this do this you know i would still have a say but it would be like that fresh perspective of like oh yeah cool right yeah that is something that Maybe was hanging on from version four and isn't as relevant in version 11, but it still felt important because it used to be, but now it's not. And I can't see that anymore. Yeah. And it's so great to have people in your life that can do that and not really worry about your feelings. Like it's not like they're being mean about it. They're just being very uh, upfront or saying this doesn't work. This needs to change because that last five or 10% of a game design is maybe the hardest part is getting it from good to great is getting all the little pieces in it that are good they work but really just like you said going to it with a hatchet and getting that last little handful of percentage points to where it's really ready to go 
Yeah, I mean, Matt and I, when we work on Pandemic Legacy, are always our happiest, like two-thirds the way through. Usually happens two-thirds the way through. It happens in bits and pieces along the way. But when we're doing like a passive editing and we just end up taking away 10%, yeah. right? One of us will say, like, we're trying to fix a problem, we're trying to fix a problem. Then one of us will say, wait a minute, do we need this at all? Right. Right? Can we remove this whole section and does that make the game worse or better? And often we're like, no, this isn't needed. Yep. No one will even know it's missing. <laughs> and we do it and we're delighted because it just makes it tighter and tighter and tighter. And the joke he made, which I find to be very true, is somewhere in season one, I said, I don't know, it feels like we're about 80% done. He goes, oh, I agree, but it's the next 80% that's going to be hard. <laughs> yeah, that's a great way to look at it. Yeah. So when you're when you're running a play test, like when you're actually you know at the table or at least near the table and you've got your notepad and all that, what are you taking notes about? Like what, what, if I were to look in your notebook, what would it say? You know, those kind of like, what are the notes in those play tests? Well, this is where Matt and I are different. Matt will write down note, 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 observations. Some of it's just very mechanical. Uh, they played this rule wrong. First cure found on turn three. Uh, you know, this person isn't using their power. Just like notes of what they're watching, how the game goes. Um, he makes a point of always putting down an observation, not just an idea, like a design idea, because the design idea will be new and maybe will be wrong. Yeah. But the observation that led to the idea, you should be able to back up and go to. So he doesn't just put like, add, I don't know, blah, 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 add this action to the game. Because then if that action doesn't work, you don't remember why. That's a good point. Right. So it'd be like, you know, game seems slow in the middle the little line, add this action to the game. And then when that doesn't work, you're like, okay, well, the game's still slow in the middle, <laughs> right. right? We just didn't have the right solution. I am still learning the discipline, right? I always feel like I'm still figuring out how to do this job. I don't write hand well, write well, because I type all the time. I should sit down with my laptop and do that exact same thing. Yeah. But I get caught up in a moment and I just kind of watch them. And then as soon as it's done, I run to my computer and write down like the 10 most important things that I saw or like whatever comes out the top of my head. So I suspect I miss things that he would write down, but also he's perfectly fine writing down everything, typing up like 200 notes, and then we go through it and we find like the 10 things that are relevant. Right. Um, I just try to do that, filter those out in my head and then immediately write down the 10 things. And I think somewhere in between is what a, a, a traditional person would do. Like I probably should write down as I go and write 50 things which would feel like too many. Like, I know these aren't all important, but I should do it because I might miss something. And he probably, if I said to him, like, Matt, like, he had a whole notebook with like 80 pages. And when we were playtesting season two of Pandemic, he filled it over the course of like 10 games. Wow. <laughs> with, with just note after note. And I'm like, he would probably say like, well, I didn't need them all, but I got need to do something while I'm sitting there. Yeah, <laughs> I got to fill your time. <laughs> yeah. So what are, what are the uh, questions that you ask when a play when a play test is finished and you're sitting there and you're saying, okay, obviously was the game fun or things like that, but what are some of the more like the deeper level questions that you ask? Well, I think it's important when you're play testing a game to really properly frame it to the play testers before you start. I think too many people sit down and say, "Will you play my game?" Yeah, and they don't say like where it's at or mm. or what the issues are or like known bugs. And, and to some extent you don't want to lead the witness. Like you don't want to say like, I think the combat system is broken because then everyone will be like, want to do combat right. or assume it's broken or we'll try to break it. But it would be good to sit down and say, I've got this game. 
it's working pretty well. Um, it might be a little long, so we may or may not finish depending on how you're feeling. So don't feel bad to tag out. Like I know that, um, there's a couple areas I want to look at, you know, so play around with a combat system and have some fun with it. Cause I, I want to see how far you can push it. Now, so you haven't said it's wrong yeah. or it's bad. You're just saying that you're going to pay close attention to that. And you're saying like, what you don't want is people just mentally internally begging to be done with the play test. Yeah. And you're making him go an extra 40 minutes to technically end, even though if you're only testing combat and you got all the information you need out of it, you know, the game's running long. Why, why put them through that? Yeah. So I think it's important to frame it at the beginning. And I will say to people, okay, I got a game. We're going to play three rounds. Yeah. And all I want to know is like, do you know what you're doing on a turn? And does it seem fun? And then I'll just, that's all the data I need right now. Uh, but the questions that are after a lot of designers have a lot of different opinions on this. Like I know Kevin Wilson doesn't want any comments. I mean, he may have changed. I may be oversimplifying and talk to him, but I believe him to say he doesn't want any comments from play testers, any solutions from people after. Yeah. He does not want to hear ideas because those are answers to problems and his job to figure out the answers to problems. And he has discovered if you're going to use the same play testers in a game time and time again, and they're offer a solution. And then you as a designer don't implement that solution because of various reasons. And then the next week, they're playing and there's something still wrong. They'll say, well, well you should have done my thing, right? Yeah. Like they start getting ownership and they start getting mad when you're not doing their ideas. Right. And by just keeping those from ever coming in allows people to not sort of feel slighted. Um, you know, what I will tell people is I'm going to ask for ideas and you can feel free to pitch ideas, but you should know that I throw away over 90% of the ideas that I get. Yeah. So I'm going to throw away over 90% of the ideas you get and just don't take it personally, right? You give like, it's, it's not like you have bad ideas. It's that this, Whole process is about throwing stuff out until you find stuff. I think it's important as a game designer to to act as an editor at this point. Like I don't mind letting people talk and brainstorm sometimes with friends. Like just talk about what you liked and what you didn't like. And they'll inevitably be like, oh, you know, it'd be cool. And I have other designer friends like, why are you doing that? You're not going to do any. I'm like, because I'm trying to find the common problem that's underlying all of these solutions that they can't really articulate. Yeah. And so when I'm talking and I finally I'll see to go, oh, it sounds to me like you want more focus on the economic engine because I've given you money, but I'm not giving you enough to do with it. And they'll go, yeah, yeah, that's it. And I'll say, OK, so I guess the choices are, do you think I should just get rid of it entirely or do you think it's worth keeping to make robust? And then we can have a conversation about that. But until I let them talk about like, I want a market and there should be an auction and I want this and I want that. And I'm like, why do they want all these? Cause their, their answer is always going to be adding more. Yeah. And then I'm like, Oh, they're adding more. Cause I've given them gold, but not enough. I give them like one thing to do with it. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I'll say, okay, smart design is take it out. How would this game look if you take it out? And then we can have an, you know, experiment about that. I'm like, okay, so the other option is to give you a whole bunch more to do with it. How does that work? And, and you know, how does that feel? And so that it can be a guided discussion. So, but for me, Sometimes I see the underlying problem. Sometimes I don't. So I don't mind letting them talk and get it sort of like suss it out. Yeah. Um, they will tell you a ton of things as they're playing. I don't like this. <laughs> I think I should be able, I think I should be able to move after I attack, not just before. Right. They'll just like we all do when you're playing a game and you're in that moment where you want to do something and you can't. But because the designer's there and it's not done, you basically shout out a rules change to them. <laughs> Right. Like, which would you are like, ah, well, of course you want to do that then. But is that really the best thing to do in the game? So yeah. you just go, OK, and you write that down like or I'll say like noted. Right. And just keep playing. Yeah. There's such an art to digging into the feedback and understanding the bigger 
issue or the bigger, deeper problem that, that they're actually talking about this over here, but they're saying this over here. Yeah. And even though I do this kind of, you know, I do it full time and I've, I've worked on hundreds of games. It's hard for anyone to suss it out, to yeah. figure out like what the underlying systems. And I think for me personally, it's, um, I need a little bit of time to process it. Like it's not like a week later I'll figure it out, but when it's done with the game, like if I get up and move around and take a walk, yeah. I can usually be like, okay, well this happened and that happened and this, and now that's still important. And then I'll go, Oh, Oh, there it is. Right. I played tested a game yesterday with my wife that I'd been playing with people and it got like really, really hard mm-hmm. and it was a co-op and it's still relatively early on. Like we're just getting to like a sta- stable play test. And, uh, you know, I just walked away and made lunch, came back and go, it's cause it was two player, not three or four. Like I thought it scaled perfectly, but blank, blank, blank scales with four and therefore it's easier. And she's like, Oh yeah. I'm like, okay. So there wasn't anything wrong with the game. There's just more of a variability between player count now that we know that. So let's just play test it with three, which is the middle and then figure out how it goes from there, from here on out. Yeah. But it took a little bit to, to, to get there, right. you know, instead you're like, Oh, this is too hard and this is too easy. And this is too you just want to fix all these problems. Like, yeah. oh, we need to move further. You should start with an extra card, like, you know, instead of figuring out why that happened. Yeah, I don't know what it is about walking around, but it just gives you ideas. Like, I'll, I'll just get up in the middle of the night if I'm working on a game and just pace around my house and just wander. And for whatever reason, I don't know if it's blood flow, I don't know if it's standing up, I don't know what it is, but something about walking around just gives you good ideas. Uh, for Yeah, that's true for you, it's true for me, and I think it's yeah. true for many people, but everyone has a way to synthesize. I've discovered the two ways that I, there's three places that I get sort of good ideas and none of them are at my desk, yep. right? Like that's where I execute ideas for the most part is walking around, but I live in the Northeast. So like, like right now I got, you know, 18 inches of snow outside, yep. um, walking around, uh, in the shower, which a lot of people say, yep. you know, is a chance cause it just sort of relaxes you and puts you in a different brain state. And when I drive in a car and I put on classical music, so it's not silent, but I don't, I'm not singing along and often it doesn't get interrupted by commercials like national public radio. It's just classical music and I'm on a highway or something. I can really let my mind go and churn through a problem and like really think it through and get those aha moments. Um, and I think all of these are just a way to find the brain space where you can, uh, let stuff happen in your subconscious. Yeah. You just kind of wander around in your own brain. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you do when a playtest just bombs? Like maybe it was going well when you're playing in your head or with your wife, but then you get it on the table in front of a group or from, you know, from new people and it's just not any good. What do you, how do you handle that? Well, hopefully I've set it up where the new people playing it, I would say something like, like I said before, like we may not play the whole thing. This is just coming together. I think it's going to work, but it may not. And we'll figure it out. And then like, if it's going wrong, like I'll call it, there's no point in continuing the pain. As a matter of fact, and I talk about this when I teach game design, like you shouldn't have a beginning, middle and an end to the game the whole time. Right? You, you could just start like we're going to do it in the middle. So you've had a couple turns and you've gathered some make up a game, gathered some items and some resource and you got some money. And I, I haven't quite figured out it's a little too slow right now, but you got to here. And now we're going to do this part. And yeah. I just want you to play three turns and see like this is this is the amount that you should like. Oh, no, that was way too much money. Yeah. Right. Like or oh, those decisions weren't interesting or people were still confused. But, yeah, no, if a gameplay session's going wrong. I want those people to play this game again or another mm-hmm. one of my game again. So I'll be like, all right, time out. Is anyone having fun? Yeah. No. Okay. Why aren't you having fun? What are you frustrated with? What didn't, it seemed like right there when that guy took your card, that's when you quit. 
Yeah. Right. And they'll be like, yeah, because I worked really hard to get it. And as soon as they took it from me, I felt like I wasted the past three turns. And so why bother taking three more turns only to have something stolen from me? And that just felt bad. Yeah. And I'm like, well, okay. So, you know, and then you talk about the different issues because it's all going to be emotion, right? No one's going to sit down and say, I think that your overall costing metric is off by 10% because it's too subtle to see. Yeah. Right. So instead, it's going to be people are going to be mad right. or bored or confused. Yeah, and I think it's so important not to be a completionist when it comes to playtesting. Like, don't feel like you have to finish. Like, it's okay just to step back and go, all right, let's do this again. Because like you're saying, you want these people to play it again. And so you don't want them to go in thinking, oh, this is a drudgery slog last time. You want them to think, oh, okay, uh, yeah, I'll give it a shot. Yeah, I, what I would rather do, and I see too many people try to get, first of all, a full um, – a full game on the table, which is not necessary, and then right. may play it to completion, which is really unnecessary. Yep. Right, if you're going to get people to play for 40 minutes, I would rather have them play the game four times, each for 10 minutes, each time with a slightly different rule set. Okay. Right? You play a game, you play it for 10 minutes, you're like, I'm going to call this here. This and this this doesn't seem to be working. Do you like this? Do you not like this? Okay, so let's switch this. Let's say you can do this. Let's say you can do this. And then this rule ties now go to the defender instead of the attacker. Okay, let's start again. Okay, cool. That seemed to work, but now this made this too long, right? So I'm going to go to three actions down from four actions. Let's tighten up the turn and try that. And, you know, like nothing you're saying can't be undone. Right. Right. I think there's that other fear in gameplay, which is like, ah, but if I do this, I'm going to change this. I'm like, that's okay. You got a version over here. Save it. Save a different copy. You can always go back to where you were. Just take this little quick journey. And again, don't spend three weeks like figuring out the second tiebreaker on this other journey. Yeah. Spend as little time as possible to try it, which is why, why I rather do it just at the table in the moment. Yeah. Almost like a little bit of like jazz, like improv. So Yeah, and that's something Richard Lanius talks about. Uh, he said, you know, if he runs into uh, a tough play test, he'll change a rule right there on the spot. You know, he's, he's saying that he was working on a co-op game that was just too easy. There was no tension. All the dice rolls the players were succeeding on. So, they, you know, it's like, well, this is not even that fun because it's just – too easy and he said he changed one or two little rules real quick to just amp up the difficulty and said okay play it now and it changed the whole experience all of a sudden there was tension there was drama in the game he said so if you you know if something's not working right just change it right there oh yeah i change stuff all the time i yeah. treat and i know other people like james Ernest, the designer he's got a really good group of play testers released it a couple years ago when he told me this story and he says sometimes he sits down with um with next to nothing mm-hmm and then, like, we'll sit down and sort of start pitching the game and have an idea, and then they'll start playing. Someone's like, how does this work? He's like, I don't know. And they're like, how about if we do this? Like, cool. That'll <laughs> almost be like a design brainstorm with yeah. him acting as, like, the editor. Like, right. he gets final say, like, no, no, yeah, let's try that. Okay, let's not try that. Let's do the thing you said, right? Like, and just he's putting together the pieces in real time. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the extreme view, but I've done something really close to that when working on a project with other designers or developers where I'm sitting down, I'm like, this is going to kind of work like this, but I'll have like a stack of blank cards and a pen yeah. and like a, some dice and some chips. I'm like, I'm ready to like throw anything in or take anything out. So this is more like a workshop brainstorm early play test than a play test of a game that you have to play as I wrote it. Cause I, I just want to see like, is the idea good? Is this fun? Is this going in a direction? Is it interesting? Um, are the things that I want you to react to, are you reacting to? Yeah. I mean, just to do my example before. It's like, it's a combat game with an economic system. It's like, I don't even like the combat. I just like you. This money thing is cool. Yeah. And you're like, do I take combat out? Is that where, I mean, radical changes are scary. You're like, no, this is what the game's about. Cause I thought about it for hours and hours and hours. It's like, <laughs> it's what you thought the game was about. Right. 
Yeah, so often the game will take on a life of its own. and It'll go where it wants to go, and you either shackle it down or you let it run free. Yeah, I, I often say when things are going well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm following the game. Yeah. Right. And it becomes this thing like if you if you don't let it change at all, it's not going to bloom into something interesting. But if you let every comment and every play test and every person get their say, then it'll just run away from you. So like part of your job at a certain point is just, yeah, everyone seems to be responding to this. I'm going to let it go this way for a while and give up like we talked about at the beginning, some of my ego of what yep. I thought it should be yep. and instead make it what the players want it to be. And then if I don't like it, I can always bring it back. And But I'm not going to let it get out of control. I'm not just yeah. going to turn over power to whoever says an idea that's now a rule in the game. Right. And it becomes this interesting real-time editing experience when you're playtesting. That's a very different set of playtesting. That's a very different playtest experience than what I was talking about earlier where you're like videoing things, right? You need yeah. to have you need to have a stable game. Don't send out a half-baked idea and ask people to video them playing it because right. you're going to waste everyone's time. Yeah, definitely. Like you're saying, you know, give the game guardrails – but let it just kind of drive where it wants to go and not go off the cliff and not go off, right. you know, in the lake over here, but just, you know, kind of weave and wind down the road. Yeah. And one thing that Eric Lang was saying when I was in front of him once is we were play testing. We were at Unpub last year and uh, we were playing someone's game and it was pretty good. Like it felt like a game that was not bad, pretty good, had potential to be very good. And Eric just honed in like a laser and said, uh, this mechanic you have right here. Was that the first thing you thought of? And the guy's like, yeah. He goes, yeah, you don't need that anymore. Yeah. And he's like, but that's kind of the heart of the game. He's like, it was the heart of the game, but it's mm -hmm. not the heart of the game anymore. He's like, most designers might, you know, he's talking about himself, will have an idea and then build around it and it'll move within those guardrails. But you keep this, this tether to where it started. Yep. And you have to kind of sometimes pull up that tether and cut the piece of the game, which is where you started, which feels very disconcerting. Because yep. you're like, no, the whole game was about deck building. <laughs> It's a deck builder. You're like, no, that gave you an idea, yep. but it's not anymore. That, in fact, is holding you back from making this really cool game because you, you keep trying to hold on to where it started and, and get rid of that. And that's terrifying to do. Um, so I've tried in the past year when he's saying that to just not to step back and say, where is this game not getting any better? And really question and go back and say, OK, well, I started here. Is that still relevant? And I'm often surprised, like, no, <laughs> it's not just did it the other the other day the game i was talking about playing with my wife whereas two of us the night before we had played it with three people uh including jr honeycutt yeah. um who does a lot of uh development and design help with me and and i started playing and he's like this is really cool but why do you need this yeah and uh i mean at a very top level the game has a dungeon crawl feel like there's different rooms with challenges mm -hmm. and it was so it was this big big board where you went from room a to room b to room c and he's like why can't there just be one space with a room and then you either beat that room or you run away from that room. But once you go to room B, you're never going back to room A. So just just always have one room at a time. So your board space gets less and you yeah. can focus. And it becomes more of a decision of, well, do we go back to room A? He's like, do any? I'm like, well, you could go back and finish. He's like, does anyone? I'm like, no. <laughs> and like I got that initial indignation. Like, you don't understand what this game's about, JR, right? Like it's about a bunch of rooms in a row and they all need to be there. And I've got rules for running away and I've got rules for this and I've got rules for that. And, you know, and I was like, I'm like, you know what? It feels like there's something there and I'm not going to react to it because I'm just going to be holding on to what it was, not what it should be. And I woke up the next morning I'm like, yeah, it's just one room at a time. You're right. I had to just let go of it overnight. And that's when I played with my wife and we're like, oh, yeah, this is much tighter. Now you don't need rules for running away. Now you don't need rules for this. Now the decision of whether you flee the room versus finish the room becomes 
different, you know, like before, like because you always knew you could go back, it didn't feel like as big a decision. And I'm like, yeah, no, I had to get rid of in my head. I saw how it was going to look at the very beginning. And he took away that and said, doesn't need to look like this. It should look like this. And that was hard. Yeah. But it's so good to have people like developers, like, you know, really good playtesters that can look at a game and go, why are you doing this? And just ask those really pointed questions that make you step back as a designer and go, why am I doing this? Do I really need this? Because like you're saying, it could be uh, one of those sacred cows that you've kind of set up in your game that really just needs to become a hamburger. Um, yeah. And, and it's hard. You'll get defensive. Yeah. Like you don't know. You don't listen. You, you don't know everything about this game. I have spent <laughs> hours and hours. It's very important. And as a play tester, be careful how you frame it. Right. Because this is this person's this sort of brainchild and work and you if you're a good playtester, should give it respect. And the respect is to go in and be like, hey, I like what you're doing here. I like what you're doing here. Have you thought about this? Which it just sounds like you're sort of glad-handing someone and not calling it like it is. But what you want to do is get your point across without it making them defensive. And everyone's different. Some people don't get defensive and some people get overly defensive. But why not err on the side of caution? What JR says, do you want comments as we're playing in real time or do you want me to wait till the end? I'm like, just let's play a couple rooms and then, you know, save them up. Write them down if you have to. Because I wanted him to see it as I had envisioned it mm-hmm. and not be making changes, not derail it and not say, well, wait, you're going to see or hold on. I want him to have the full thing. And then he got done. He's like, yeah, the thing I was going to say, which I still agree. And he said that. Um, but what he said first is, I really like this game. I like the tone. I think the writing's good. Yep. Um, he's like, how long do you want it to be? I'm like, 40 minutes. He's like, it'll be over an hour at this point. I'm like, yep, I need to shorten. And he's like, so with all that said, Here's what I think needs to change. And so I already had like this sort of validation. You're on the right track, but you need to change this. And I'm like, okay, cool. And I still got like, no, no, you're all, (laughs) look, all these rooms are in a row. Uh, But then I I sat with it. It was the type of thing that I knew it was right as soon as he said it. But I had to wait for all the defensive things in my head that are like, but I'm a good game designer. I should have seen this. Right. To like get out of the way, but no, 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 but, oh, but I'd have to change this rule. Mm-hmm. And when we were talking the next day, I was like, yeah, you're right. I said, you know, but it's, it's just, you get this such a feeling of satisfaction when a game is playable. Yep. Like I figured out all the rules. It may not be good, but you assume at that point, it's not going to go backwards. Right. And it's like, ah, you got to go backwards and I got to rewrite the rules. And I got to redo all those cards and I got to cut them out again. So some of it was just the disappointment of having to go backwards, even though it would lead to a better game is, is very palpable. Like, but I just cut all these cards and now half of them don't work. (laughs) So one question I get all the time, just people email me all the time is how do I set up a play test group? How do I find play testers? What does that look like? So what kind of advice would you give? Cause you, you have a weekly play test group that you have people come in and play your games. You know, you have your wife. I, I tell them, first of all, get married because that's like the best play tester you can have. My wife is phenomenal. She was gone. She was in the States for a month. And so I didn't really get to play test very much because my chief play tester wasn't here. So anyway, get married if you want a really good play tester. Uh, but what do you do to create, create that group of play testers? I, I'm, I mean, honestly, I'm still struggling with it a little bit because I, I had it at Hasbro. Yep. And then when I left Hasbro, I went, like I said, like it took me a couple hours to get this feedback loop, went to a couple weeks, which I knew was too slow. So I put together a play test group and we met every Wednesday and it's good, but it's the same group. Right. So you're only going to get the same mindsets and I can decide before I put on the table who's going to win and who's going to be good at it and who's going to have complaints. And so, again, you're not talking to your audience. You're just talking to a small group, but it's still better than nothing. Right. Um, 
I sometimes just put the balloon up on Twitter, right? Like who wants to play test? What you should know is at that point, by and large, you're going to end up doing print and play where they're going to have to print out PDFs. So if you get 40 people to say yes, 10 will actually make it and three will actually give you feedback. So don't get excited about getting 40 responses, but it's cost you nothing. You just emailed a PDF. They put the time in. Um, Eric Lang lives in Toronto, so he can just draw from several million people. So he's (laughs) right. So he's cultivated a Toronto group via Facebook where there, they may have like a hundred people and then his wife runs his play testing and he, she finds subsections to keep them from burning out and find like, it's got notes on people like mm-hmm. this person loves, you know, killing things. This person, uh, will have option paralysis. And so they'll like go through and like, yeah, I want these people. And, or, you know, this person has been here four times in the past two months. So rotate them out for a month. So they don't get burnt out. Yeah. Um, so they have a very organized system. I wish I had a better answer than that. Local colleges are good, local game groups, game stores. Um, it's a lot of driving around and begging people to do your work for you. Yeah. Do you, How do you compensate people? Do you get pizza and, and Coke or what do you do? Yeah, I'll pick up dinner, put their names in the rule book, try to get them copies of the game if they're dedicated play testers, name something in the game after them or their kid, right? Like give them a, <laughs> yeah. you know, something that makes it feel tangible. Like all this all the seafall, yeah. All the seafall advisor pictures are playtesters, oh, or nearly cool. all of them. Yeah, that's a really. So cool. if you were like a hardcore playtester, I'm like, give me your photo, and we'll do it. We might change your gender, we might change your race, we might change your <laughs> age, but like you can look at it and be like, hey, that's me. Right. Um, that's what I look like as a woman. All right. <laughs> yeah. No, we have. A, I have a friend who's a woman, and she got turned into like a badass like looks like a Native American, you know, warrior. Yeah. And we're all like, where are you? She's like, I'm not in here. And they're like. That's you. And then I looked at the picture. She's like, oh, that is my face. Like, it's a, <laughs> she's like, look at me. I'm a badass, like, yeah. you know, Apache warrior. Okay, right. cool. <laughs> That's awesome. So how, how do you know when a game is done? Like, at what point in the playtesting do you go, okay, I, I think we've pretty much wrapped it? Um, well, it's a combination. I give myself deadlines, right? So I know oh, I got to turn something over by November. So or if I'm in done October, enough. <laughs> right. So I'm, I'm in October. I should be like, this needs to be done. Yeah. Um, so it helps me drive towards it. The, there's no clear answer. The rule of thumb that I tell people is at the end of a playtest session or a series of playtest sessions, you feel that the changes you're going to make, and there'll always be changes that you want to make, are going to make the game different, but not necessarily better. Yeah. Right? Are you just making a game that's like got a little more luck? or got a little more thinking. It lets you plan ahead a little more. And you go like, yeah, well, that might appeal to these people, but now these people won't like it. Right. Right. Then you've reached the point where you're probably done because um, all you're doing is changing the groups that will like it, but you still have a group that will like it. And that's a hard thing to do. And, and I'll also say it's usually about three months after you want to throw it away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think uh, Ignacy Chevichek talks about he he'll just get to a point he just hates it like um first martians i think is the name of it it just it's coming yeah. out he's like i hate this game i'm so done with this game i'm tired of this game please come play this game so i can be done with this game you know yeah. and so it's like oh well, i think i think maybe he's along the lines of being done yeah no actually i was at a game convention with him last year and he was working on it and i asked him i said How, how's that game going right i read about it i said you know i'm i'm just wrapped up seafall so i understand these big games how they can be daunting and stuff and he's like yeah Mike, you gonna you gonna bring it out to play down here? Like, there's a lot of good playtesters. I was like, maybe. <laughs> and I'm like, why wouldn't you? And then he said something, and it was so absolutely how I feel. He goes, I'm afraid. 
I'm afraid they're not going to like it. I'm afraid of how much work I'm going to have to do. I'm afraid that I'm going to just get so upset that it's not where I want it to be that I rather avoid play testing it entirely wow. than do that. He didn't say it quite like that because sure. English is his second language, <laughs> but he just said, I'm afraid to. And and like we, I sort of got immediately what yeah. he said. Like he didn't have to explain everything I just said. I'm like, yeah, I know that. He's like, yeah. Like sometimes a game designer, you're like, this, this is like going to be like, okay, I'm going to go on this beautiful vacation, but I know we're going to take off and crosswinds in a snowstorm and the turbulence for the next five minutes is going to make me wish I had never gotten on this plane. Yep. Uh, that's sometimes what playtesting is. It's like, here's a confirmation that it's not done. That's all it is every time. Here's a confirmation that my ideas weren't good, confirmation that I, ha- I was wrong, confirmation that all the work I just did in the past week was the wrong path. That's hard. Yeah, because basically you're saying all that time and effort you put into it wasn't really valuable, wasn't really worth anything or not worth right, much. Or- all the ideas that I sat down and said I fixed it yep. were not good ideas. So why three days ago did I go, I know what I'm doing. Yep. This is a great idea. Yeah, I just said fear. Fear, yep. yeah, I'm afraid to, you know, and I'm like, yeah. And we kind of, I don't remember the exact words, but we kind of very quickly got to that conclusion of like, yeah, that sucks, doesn't it? Yeah. So, And, and I think that's the, the life of anybody in a creative field, whether it's music or uh, art or anything like that. And like you're saying, this designing a game is a craft. It is an art form and a craft. And so anytime you're dealing with art, you're going to deal with that. What if they don't like it? What if they reject it? What if my whole life is a lie? Like, I think you just kind of travel down those roads in your head. Yeah. And it's hard to like, you know, it's like when I tell people, I said, I'll put my heart into every game I make, but I have to, um, I have to be careful not to put my soul in it. Right. That's what yeah. I did. I think in a little bit of Seafall was like, this is my soul. Like this, this is a personal reflection of my self-worth yeah. because it took so long. Right. And because so many were, people were talking about it. In reality, it's a game like no, un like any other game. And for a variety of reasons, it took longer to make, Yep. you know, but like when you invest that much into it, it starts to like, like, Oh, this is, this is a reflection of me and my self-worth. And it's yep. like, no. Well, it's fighting that psychological thing. You know, if you're playing poker and you feel like you're pot committed, like you've put so much money in the middle of the table and you're looking at your cards, you're like, I don't think I'm going to win, but there's so much I've already put into this. I think I have to play it out to see what happens. And that could be a dangerous thing sometimes if, if maybe sometimes you need to fold or maybe sometimes you need to try something different. Uh, it can, it can not work out so well. Yeah. And getting back to something I said earlier, like if you've got the time, if you're not under deadline and you have a publisher demanding something, one of the things I like to do, and I think every designer would like to do is when you're really wrestling with something and you're like, feel like I'm just doing it to do the next thing, but I don't really know what to do yeah. is, um, it just put it on a shelf for a while. Yeah. Either work on something else or work on no game whatsoever. Make some notes in the box, like was stuck on these five things mm-hmm. or whatever it is, or need to do this. And then and then just walk away. And if you come back at least a month, maybe two or three months later, you don't want it to be nine months because you might forget. Right. But like get the and you'll like open up that box and you'll see those problems. And one, you'll be refreshed, right? You've got a good night's sleep, and you're like, oh, those aren't so bad. And more often than not, you'll look at three of them and go, Oh, I got an idea. Yep. Right. You're like this thing that was so vitally important is no longer vitally important. I've removed my like soul and urgency from the game and I can see it with a little bit of an outsider perspective, almost like I talked about giving the game to Isaac to take yeah. a hatchet to it. You can be your own hatchet person, but you got to break the cycle of every day or every couple of days, like immersing yourself in it, because then you start making subjective opinions because it seems important. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, Rob, man, really appreciate everything. Uh, do you have any kind of last advice on playtesting or just last advice on game design in general for people that are just getting going, just starting out? Well, I mean, I just talked for like an hour and 20 minutes about a lot of things that kind of sum it up. Sum it up. I think 
you should just know that I wake up every morning, like I got a project for a couple of days that's just daunting me. Yeah. Right. I'm, and I keep avoiding it. Maybe I should pay bills. <laughs> Maybe I should do this. You know what? This is the time to answer this email. Like everyone does it. Everyone gets daunted. Yeah. Right. That just have the ego to walk in and be like, I'm going to fix this. Maybe not now, maybe not the right idea, but any progress is good progress. It's okay to be daunted and just throw a whole bunch of stuff against the wall and just know like it's not going to work and that's okay. You didn't do a bad job. You did the job, which is to try the wrong answers, right? Right. Until you find the right answer. It's not like no one designs a game where they're like, I, then I do this and then I do this and then I do this and then it's good, right? Like it yeah. just doesn't work that way. Some people sometimes may get lucky and do that. I talked to Vlada about code names and it took him an hour. Yeah. <laughs> but he said, and this is the point, he goes, it's an hour because I played party games all my life and they've yeah. always been in the back of my head that I want to do it. And then I did the game in an hour and thought, well, that can't be right. So then I spent six months trying all these other ideas to make it better or make it different before realizing that my original idea was the correct one. Yep. So went back to that original idea, having tried all the other options that didn't make it better. So when he says it took him an hour, He's like, based on 40 years of experience and six months of confirmation. Right. And he's like, but even then, he's like, yeah, I can't do that again. That was just luck. Yeah. And honestly, it's what we were talking about before. It was the years and years and years of work that led to that opportunity to make the tackle or not. So all right. of that other stuff led up to that one moment. Right. And that was like me with legacy. Like yeah. I had done all these things and D&D &D and role playing and this. where I'm like, hey, would this work? And like, I wouldn't have just thought that walking down the street if I played games once a year. Exactly. Awesome. Well, Rob, man, really appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show, all the insight. Uh, here in just a second, we're going to go over to the bonus round. I want to hear okay. Rob Davio's thoughts on what themes need to get a legacy version. So Rob is the uh, quote, I mean, he's the, he's a go-to expert on legacy games yeah, at, the moment, and, uh, at the moment. At the moment. At the moment. And until uh, whatever that guy with Gloomhaven is, until he gets Gloomhaven Isaac. 7. Yeah, Isaac. I get, that game's rising up the ranks, man. Pandemic. Legacy, yeah, yeah, that, might be the one that, knock, that might be the one that knocks it out, which I would be surprised in a sort of delighted way. Like this $100 game with yeah. 100 hours of gameplay or something is suddenly the one that does it. I'd be like, wow, this market has really changed from <laughs> um, Puerto Rico. Yeah, right? absolutely. So anyway, we're going to get Rob's thoughts on what game or what themes need a legacy version. So anyway, thank you guys for listening. Rob, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at BoardGameDesignLab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?